What's up, all you Tigers fans, and welcome to a special edition of Tiger Talk. As always, I'm your host, Tony Garcia, and today I have the privilege of being joined by the voice of the Detroit Tigers, the play-by-play announcer on the Detroit Tigers radio network, Mr. Dan Dickerson. How are you doing today, Dan? I'm good, Tony. How are you? I'm doing well, and again, thank you for taking the time to talk some baseball my with pleasure. us today. My pleasure. On campus today, so it's, it's my pleasure to stop in. It's always good to be back in uh, campus radio. Certainly is. And while you are here to talk about Tigers, like you said, you're here in East Lansing, and there is, it's a pretty big week uh, for East Lansing and Michigan State sports as the University of Michigan Wolverines are coming up this weekend. Uh, you got a dog in that fight? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously my, my wife, Lorianne, teaches here, so uh, I'm a pretty good, good Spartan fan right now. As people know, I, I do Michigan football. So I certainly, and I grew up in a Michigan family. I make no bones about that. So I've got loyalties on both sides. Believe me, uh, with, with Lorianne teaching here and all the time I've spent on campus, I kind of sit back, watch the game, enjoy it. And uh, I mean, truly, I mean, either way. But I mean, you can't help but love what the Spartans have done. Mark D'Antonio has done a fantastic job. The program he's built here, you know, the people I've been able to meet, some of the players on the team are in Lori's class, and I, I was in her class today. Uh, it's it's a pretty impressive program and, and group of kids. It really is from from top to bottom. And, I mean, Michigan State is one of the heavy favorites in the Big Ten because of such a strong program like that. Over the past four years, I mean, they've been arguably the best team in the Big Ten every year, Rose Bowl, champion, uh, Rose Bowl champions, Big Ten titles, et cetera. Um, but it wasn't always like that in the early 2000s, and uh, they they did not have the same type of atmosphere, respect, similar to your our Detroit Tigers uh, <laughs> in the early 2000s. Um, when you start when you started your broadcast right. career with the Tigers, it was it was not like that. Uh, and you were working with the great Ernie Harwell, and of course your current partner Jim Jim Price. Can you tell us what it was like uh, back when you started? Yeah, I mean it was it was interesting because I'd done uh, some, as I mentioned, Michigan football, Michigan basketball. So I'd done play by play. My big break in my career was able to do those games because you're doing a major sport in a major market instead of high school sports in Grand Rapids, which I certainly enjoyed and is big time in Grand Rapids, but it didn't get you a foot in the door really in, <laughs> in the Detroit market. But uh, so doing those games, uh, I mean, you really – I hadn't done baseball, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed doing basketball and football. So I'd practice during those years doing my baseball. And then, you know, to actually start a season in 2000, I'd never done baseball other than my practice tapes at Tiger Stadium. So I'm truly wondering that first season, what is this going to be like? Am I, I mean, baseball is my sport. I'm passionate about baseball. And I'm thinking, will I even like baseball at the end of 162 games? I mean, is this just going to wear me down every single day? And uh, what I found was I just loved it. I mean, I just I absolutely loved it right from the start. Uh, that season was a tough start because that team had traded – for Juan Gonzalez, who was a big hitter at the time and was supposed to make an impact on this Tigers team. that At that point, they were in a streak that was going to reach 12 seasons without a winning record. And they started 9-23. and And they ended up playing much better after that. But they started 9-23. and And I remember asking uh, the great Ernie Harwell, the Hall of Famer, I, you know, how do you do games when your team is no good? And his advice was so simple, but it just stuck with me, and it served me so well when he just said, hey, just remember, somebody's listening to every game. So give them a reason to listen to every game. Now, there might be more people listening when they're winning than when they're not, but there's somebody listening. You might see a great individual performance. You might see something you've never seen before. You might see a great game between two bad teams. 
And I thought that's perfect. I mean, that's why I always, as a kid, would listen, watch. There were some lean years in the mid-70s. 75 team lost 19 games in a row at one point. Uh, but I always listened, and I went to games. I loved sitting in the center field bleachers. I got my driver's license in 1974, and I would bless my parents for letting me go. I'd drive downtown by myself and pay a buck fifty, and then four fifty to sit in the center field bleachers, and I absolutely loved it. But I would go whether they won or they lost. And so that was just a good, simple reminder of why we love baseball so much. And it served me very well as the the years went on from 2001. It was 96 losses, 106-119 in three successive years, which is hard to do. But I never remember being anything but enamored with the job. Sure, it was a challenge, but I don't ever remember thinking this job sucks. No, because it's still a fun job. People would say, how are you doing? You know, like there's a death in the family or something. The team stunk. But, hey, I'm going to the ballpark every day, and I enjoyed the heck out of it. I found out later when they started to win that it was even better. How good it could be. Yeah, it's much more fun when they're winning. There's more avenues of discussions, more positive things, obviously, to talk about. But the job has always been great. But I I truly think back to those early years with Ernie and how much it how the value of that simple reminder we love baseball, whether they win or they lose. We obviously want the Tigers to win. But, okay, what makes this game interesting? And uh, it was great, great advice. Absolutely. I try to. I still try to tell my friends all the time when it's August 18th and it's, it's a 1 o'clock game and it's game 124 <laughs> and, the, and the Tigers are playing uh, – whoever like right. the, the blue jays or something and they're they're like why are you why are you watching this why why can't we go out and go sh- shoot around a golf or whatever it is but i mean like you say you there's a reason you play and watch all yeah. 162 games and that advice from the the great as you said ernie harwell that must have come in tremendously handy when yes. you had to take over the lead play-by-play yeah. after his retirement at the end of the 2002 season and you had to announce the second worst baseball season that any team has ever had. Yeah. And and, and think of the, uh, I mean, there were some amazing wins down the stretch. Five, five I was, out of I was, six. I was uh, 10 years old. I remember five out of the last six to well, avoid the worst like record. That all season and including coming from behind 8 nothing on Saturday, the second to last day of the season against the Twins, <laughs> who took out their entire lineup because they'd already clinched. They were going to the postseason, so Ron Gardenhood took all his guys out, and the Tigers came back from 8 nothing down to win 9-8. I mean, that was one of those wins. But, again, that's a great moment. The, the moment I remember for that, from that season the most, the Tigers were playing the Angels. They'd lost 11 in a row. They were down 9-8 in the bottom of the ninth. Troy Percival on the mound. He was an absolute power pitcher who had owned the Tigers. Brandon Inge at the plate, hitting 190. So they're down a run with a man on, bottom of the ninth, hopeless situation against Troy Percival. I think he'd given up two runs in 40-some innings in his career against the Tigers. Inge hits a walk-off home run, mob scene at the plate. And, you know, and it's, again, a great moment's a great moment. It doesn't matter that there's 70 games below 500 or whatever it was at that point, probably only 60. Uh, but, I mean, <laughs> why, why can't they enjoy it? I heard somebody criticize a team for celebrating a walk-off when they were 10 games below 500 a couple of years ago, and I'm thinking, well, what are they supposed to do? Enjoy the moment. And a great moment is still a great moment, even if it's on a bad team. You can't, you can't take it away. Right. Exactly. That's why we love sports. I, I mean, that was such more. an unexpected game-winning walk-off home run, and it was a great moment. You can't – nothing changes. The records of the two teams doesn't change it. It actually made it better. I agree. And But 
and that was 2003. However, something happened over the next couple of years, whether, uh, and I, I'd like to know what, who you think it was, if it was uh, like a Carlos Guillen, Pod Rodriguez, Maglio, or Donez, or if it was just a, an overall culture shift, but just three years after what was very close to the worst team in Major League Baseball history, Detroit made what many people thought was an out-of-nowhere World Series run. What, right. What was it? A, like I said, yeah, a culture that, shift. It, what it was, was it? It was. I mean, Jim Leland had a big part to do with that. He was that his first year? That was his first year. Yeah, wow. and he just set a, a certain tone. You know, right at the beginning of the year, he had that blow up in the in the clubhouse, which was really one of his few blow ups in eight years uh, with the Tigers. Other than on the umpires, uh, right? In terms of behind closed doors type of thing, and because he was always very cautious of, you can't have too many of those because they wear thin real quickly and they fall on deaf ears pretty quickly. But he timed his first one pretty well there, about 14 games into the season, and he just let them know, you know, this this is why you guys haven't won. They, they kind of kicked away a game against Cleveland, I think it was, heading to the West Coast. He said, you guys were already mentally on that plane flying to the West Coast. You didn't give your best effort here today. Uh, you weren't here. And he, I mean, he blistered them by all accounts and let them know this isn't this isn't acceptable. And I think that, that I always think of that as just kind of talking about a culture change. I mean, just... Here's an experienced manager who knows what it's like to win. He's won three division titles in a row with Pittsburgh. This is if you want to win, this is what you have to do. And he had he had enough players to do it, but I think he certainly got the most out of that team. They were 40 games over 500 at one point, 76 and 36. But the Pudge Rodriguez signing was huge after that 2003 season. It allowed Maglio to come the next year. Uh, without Pudge, I don't think you get Maglio. It's just that whole thing of okay, wait a minute, maybe maybe that team that lost 119 maybe they're building something after all maybe that owner certainly is showing that he's willing to spend money that that's no small part of it but hey maybe this isn't such a bad spot i mean it went from being a place that everybody avoided if you were a free agent to suddenly a place you at least considered and then suddenly a place where it was pretty attractive to come to be you know to play and suddenly the reputation of the tigers changed the you know, being a nice place to live and to bring your family in the summer. You know, most people don't live here, but they, they I think they found out that's pretty nice. Southeast Michigan's a pretty nice area. Um, uh, we've heard enough of the bad about Detroit, but I think it kind of changed Mr. Illich, truly changed that perception, bringing those guys in, spending his money freely. He guaranteed after 2003 this will never happen again. But it all started with that Pudge signing, and then Jim Leland was that piece that I thought brought it all together. Wow. It's amazing how... It's pretty much come full circle and just where things are now. Um, in 2006, Detroit came out of nowhere. It, Detroit is no secret nowadays. Right. They're a perennial powerhouse. Since 2011, have, have won what people claim to be a weak division, but you cannot take anything away. They've Team been, from that division's in the World Series this uh, year. <laughs> which we, that's a good point. And so what, is, it, is it different for a team – to go into the season like this 2014 team with with knowing that they're maybe the favorites oh, of sure. the American League? And what's that pressure like? How, how can you deal with I that? I think it's all a matter of how you handle it. I always thought Jim Leland put it very well in that uh, there's good pressure and there's bad pressure. Um, bad pressure is when people expect you to win, you have no talent. He says it's like being taking a test tomorrow and you haven't prepared for it. Good pressure is, well, you're expected to win, but there's a reason you're expected to win. That's because you have talent. So embrace it. Hey, we're good. People think we're going to win it. Why do they think we're going to win? Because you've got talent. So go ahead and, and go out there and play your best and show them just how good you are. I always thought that was a good way to put it. You know, that bad pressure of uh, you're expected to win, but you have no talent. That, that, that's not a good feeling. You guys are talented. We've got talent here. 
Go ahead. Bring on the expectations. I think the thing that has changed is I think fans sometimes the expectation seems to have changed to it's the season is not a success unless you win a World Series. And I think to me, and I'm I'm a little biased because <laughs> you know I work for the Tigers, but to me it still seems like that's uh, that that means that 29 franchises have a season that was a failure. I, I don't think that's right. In that, I think all you can do is ask if you're a fan of that team, have they put together a team that can win a World Series? As we're seeing this postseason, I think more than anything, this postseason demonstrating, you just don't know. Are the Kansas City Royals going to be a team that everybody's going to follow their blueprint? I doubt it. I doubt they're going to try to build a team that hits the fewest home runs, walks the least, is in the bottom five in run scoring, uh, and has a great bold. I mean, it's just all the credit to Kansas City. They've been fantastic. I've thoroughly enjoyed watching them in the postseason, but it, I think it really does remind you that's an 89-win team that the Tigers beat 13 out of 19 times by beating up their starting pitching, by the way. Uh, that's, I mean, it just shows you there can be a flukiness to the postseason. There's no question about that. So from a fan standpoint, to me, it just seems logical to say, was this team built to win possibly a World Series? This year's team probably had more fatal flaws than, say, last year's team. I thought last year's team was the team that was built to win the World Series. So, sure, you can break it down and criticize some of the moves that were made or not made and talk about the weaknesses in the bullpen. But I, don't, I really don't think you can say a season is a failure if you don't win the World Series. I really don't. You can criticize how a team is built and if they're not getting into the playoffs. But if they get to the playoffs and they're in position, and this team could have won a World Series, I think if you know Nathan and Chamberlain, I thought, had to lock down the eighth and ninth inning uh, in the postseason and Chamberlain had been pitching better, it didn't happen. And Soria had pitched poorly, and, I, and that's surprising. That was surprising, let's face it. But, I mean, that, that's all I think from a fan standpoint. I just don't think you can call a season a failure if, if you don't win the World Series because then 29 teams are going to look at themselves as failures, and I don't think that's right. I, could, I couldn't agree more. Four consecutive division championships, a World Series appearance. This is the first time in four years that you haven't made it to the championship round of right. your league. It's, it's been success across the board. And even this 2014 season, not just uh, getting to a wild card game, but winning a division and playing in a real series, it's you. Can, I I couldn't agree more. Like like I said, um, and like you said, it's not a failure just because you haven't won at all. Right. You can critique the season and the moves that were made. That's fine. That's that's what the you know fans. I mean, that's why we're here. That's why you know the, the fans are feel free. But also, just I, I just think that labeling is is the thing that I, I have seen again this year. I saw it last year, saw it this year, and I, that that's the part that bothers me a little bit. You can't say World Series title or it's a failure. That's that's the one thing I would say. Right, and with and with this fan this uh, fan idea and them uh, everyone uh, talking about what Tiger should have done, shouldn't have done. Do you think it was uh, unfair of them to? Talk about the way maybe Brad Ausus was micromanaging the ninth. People, if he if he would uh, if he would walk out and talk to a Verlander or a David Price, and uh, and he would talk to them and ask them what what we perceived him asking them if they're okay, right. how are you feeling? When Jim Leland would do that, because there would be a few times with Verlander or someone where he would do that and he would even let them stay. Sure, but most of the time he would come out and take the ball. But whatever he did. People stood by it, and that's our guy. That's right. England. Were the were the fans uh, un, unfair to Brad Ausmus because he he was a, a like a rookie manager? Well, I, I think you, you're, you're subject to more second guessing when you're a rookie manager. There's no question. But just remember, Jim Leland got second guessed a lot. He really did. I thought uh, surprising, really, for his level of of expertise. And I think he's one of the sharpest people I've ever met. He doesn't miss a thing, and he observes 
everything. But isn't that what you want your manager to do is to be able to look into the eyes of a guy? It didn't always work out with Brad. I know he left a couple of guys in, and they gave up some hits after that. But isn't I mean, that's his job is to – he's got to read his guys. Isn't that what he's there to do? For instance, Brad Osmus takes out Anibal Sanchez after two innings. This is the move that he got barbecued for in the postseason. Well, I think it's pretty safe to say that they – Probably the Tigers, Brad Osmus, Jeff Jones, whole staff, whole team probably wanted Sanchez back out there for the eighth. Who do you think they wanted on the mound in the eighth inning? Probably Anibal Sanchez because he was six up, six down. But before the game, they talked about two innings, 30 pitches. This is what they told Anibal Sanchez. So if he's going to work the eighth and he'd already pitched two innings and thrown roughly 30 pitches, then it's probably on, they're probably looking for that look in Anibal Sanchez's eyes that says, or verbally that says, I got this. I got the eighth inning. I'm going back out. They've already told him he's basically done after two innings and 30 pitches. But if he says, I'm ready to go, or he reads, he's reading his guy. I don't know what went on in the dugout, but I'm guessing that he probably read his guy and decided, okay, this is what we told him. He's not coming over to say, give me the eighth, and I've got to hold him back because he would have had the eighth. That's a manager knowing his guy and protecting him by taking him out at that point instead of putting him back out there when he probably didn't expect to be out there. Maybe Sanchez said, I'm done. Maybe Sanchez expended a lot of energy. In the- we don't know that. But I can guarantee you they wanted him out there in the eighth inning based on all the struggles in the eighth inning. Of course they did. But they also asked their eighth inning guys, San- or, uh, Soria and Chamberlain, to protect a three-run lead. That's the other part of that equation. I think that's the kicker. If, if Detroit uh, can boast Kansas City's bullpen, then the, the lead is most likely not blown. And then all the second-guessing might not come back. Right. So with Ch- and, and as dominant as Chamberlain was and I do mean dominant in the first half of the season, he looked like that like that that two-year stretch on the Yankees where he was one of the best relievers. Right. It, it appeared as if the D- Detroit had gotten that. Right, they had the 8th inning guy. They yeah. yeah, that whether Joe Nathan was way uh shaky from right. day 1 or not, at least they had a setup man. Right. And and then in the second half that he just faded and then Soria who was dominant for the Rangers, he came over, had a shaky couple first starts, then got hurt, came back, never found his form, and even though Joe Nathan, he slowly but surely lowered his ERA, three proven guys who who at some point this year either pitched well right. or very recently have, have been dominant. Right. And you love to see that. How how can you explain right. it? Right. It's hard to explain. It really is. I mean, Jabba Chamberlain faded the last two months, like you said. But So so think about it. Brad Osmus didn't really have one guy that he could say that from April through September for six months, you're always going to have little ups and downs, but for six months he didn't have that guy that he could lean on consistently because – Nobody was consistent, I wouldn't say, for six consecutive months. Me neither. Again, you're going to have ups and downs for every reliever within those six months, but month to month you should be able to look at a guy and say, pretty steady all year. And he didn't have that one guy. That's that's a tough way to manage. It really is. And uh, I thought he did the best with what he had. Right. So moving forward toward looking at 2015, as 2014 didn't end the way any of us wanted it to, um, is this, is the bullpen, I mean, Detroit's been in the playoffs for four consecutive, for four consecutive years and it's in, wow, that must have actually back in 06 with the pitching errors. And then in 2011, 12, 13 with, uh, like one of the higher bullpen ERAs in the postseason of any team. Is it fine at Detroit? We, they spend the money. They get the big name they guys. They make the moves. Is it? It just hasn't panned out. So it's a tricky thing. 
Yes, would I start with the bullpen? I'm sorry, I cut you it, off there. No, no, it's not a problem. It's not a problem. <laughs> you, it's because you know where I'm going. Is, yeah. the, is that the area? And, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's so annoying to ask because Joe Nathan was picked up last year, right. a f- almost a first ballot Hall of Famer. Top, How, what more can yeah, you do? The top two guys in save percentage the last eight years were number one, Mariano Rivera, number two, Joe Nathan, number two, A, was Joaquin Soria. I mean, Dave Dombrowski tried to address a clear need by going out and getting Nathan, the best guy on the market, and at the trade deadline, the next best, most consistent reliever, not over a year, over six, seven years in Joaquin Soria. And they gave up a lot to get Soria, but that's his value. He's that good and relatively cheap at $7 million for next year. So, I mean, no lack of trying. Pick up Jim Johnson, uh, (laughs) who's been traded from Baltimore, released by the A's. Uh, Hanrahan, I mean, no lack of trying. They thought they had Andrew Miller. They thought they had him. I saw somebody say, well, they came close. They should have gotten him. They thought they had him. I mean, they truly thought they had a deal, from my understanding, and they didn't get him at the trade deadline. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was no lack of trying, and it's just it's the fickle nature of bullpens. I know Kansas City's bullpen. You know, Kansas City's bullpen really wasn't – it was not as good this year as last year. It's been phenomenal in the postseason, but it's really those three guys that you mentioned – Herrera, Davis, and Holland at the back end of the bullpen. But there are a lot more inconsistencies. Crow was inconsistent. Collins was inconsistent with the minor leagues. If I remember right, I think Herrera might even have started the year in the minor leagues. For, I think so. For Kansas City. So this Amazing. isn't like a no-brainer. And Wade Davis was a starter last year. They had no clue <coughs> he was going to be dominant in the eighth inning. But he took over for Hochaver, who was the setup man last year, who had Tommy John surgery so or was injured. So, again, it, there, there's – I don't know that there's a set way you can build a bullpen. <laughs> uh, I think, I mean, Dave Dombrowski, I'm sure, is looking over, okay, what, what, what can we try next? Because it, the, the, I think the one thing you can say is spending a ton of money on a closer is hit and miss. Setup guy, I think, is that's where the money has started to come in recent years. I would think Andrew Miller might be that guy, but he's going to cost a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a very tricky thing, and I think you you probably look at those teams that have some consistency year to year in their bullpen and figure out what are they doing so well. <laughs> I think a lot of times it is those failed starters from the minor leagues that turn into the best relievers. But again, how do you identify those guys? Was Wade Davis a no brainer short reliever? Not at all coming so. into this season. Yes, he'd had good numbers with Tampa. But because of his year last year, I mean, are you thinking he's going to be a lights-out eighth-inning guy? No. So it takes some talent to identify those guys, and there's no question there's some luck involved. Eventually it just comes to stepping up. <laughs> you can have the name, but right. you just got to pitch well. And I'd say what might be the, the next point of contention, for lack of a better term to call it, is uh, the, the Tigers' outfields with – Jackson leaving. Raja, yes, he signed a two-year contract, but he wasn't signed as a center fielder. And J.D. Martinez, who is in a year of arbitration, and all you Tigers personnel, back office staff, this is my time. Lock him up. Please. Please lock up, J.D. <laughs> but And then with Torrey Hunter mulling retirement, I mean, th- this outfield is uncertain. Is there a direction you would... I've heard Colby Rasmus' name starting yeah. to be thrown around. Is there a direction you'd like to see... I was looking at Colby Rasmus because I've seen that name a lot. Um, Nice year a couple of years ago. Definitely tailed off and defensively tailed off, at least by the numbers. And numbers can be a little bit misleading. So, obviously, that's where the scouts come in. What were those defensive – How I I know about offensively. What exactly defensively? I look at uh, defensive runs saved, which is something you can find on Baseball Reference. It's Baseball Info Solutions uh, measurement. They look at every play, and they have their own system. There's some subjectivity to it, but – 
you know, you have to look at something. Fan graphs also, uh, they differ a little bit in their way they compute it. But, again, if you put those two together, and as I've been reminded by those who analyze stats for the Tigers, think of uh, if you're looking at one year of at-bats, think of three years of defensive statistics because the sample size is so much smaller over one year compared to, say, at-bats that you really should look at three years of defensive statistics. Wow. But Colby Rasmus' defense definitely dropped this year. He's uh, not a, a big offensive threat. He will hit home runs, but low batting average. Uh, not especially a high walk guy either. I mean, if he's low batting average, home runs, high walks, I'm, I'm interested. But it's low batting average, home runs, low walks, relatively in defense that was at least down this year by the numbers. So I'm not I'm not, not sold. I look at war as well, wins above replacement. I think that's a very valuable tool. It's not the be-all, end-all, but you have to start someplace. The most valuable player on the Tigers this year by war, which is just wins above replacement, is Ian Kinsler. And I would say that that reminds you that a second baseman who hits a little bit, I know he faded in the second half, but plays gold glove caliber defense and hits, drives in 90 runs and comes up with big hits, is there's extremely, there's a lot of value in that. And he was by war, he was the Tigers' most valuable player this year, or at least their best player. Um, so, so I mean, you look at things like that. Colby Rasmus had a low, his war dropped sharply this year. So he doesn't especially attract me. And that. I think of a Cameron Maben, plus defender, can't hit, <laughs> really. I mean, his offensive numbers have not been good. But is that a guy you can pick up for cheap, live with the offensive production that's down? You're seeing a Lorenzo Cain, who's not a great offensive player, but what an impact a great center fielder can make. And you want a guy in center field who covers a ton of ground. And those guys tend to be younger. Austin, Jack- Austin Jackson's defense has started to slip in recent years. You know, he's getting old at age, what, 27, 28. But truly, among center fielders and the legs start to go, I mean, you, you notice it. There aren't many who cover a ton of ground in center field and continue into their late 20s, early 30s. So Cameron Maben might be relatively low-cost pickup. Again, you're not going to get much offense, but I still think, you know, you can get some maybe some stolen bases out of him. I don't know why they're down in recent years, but they have been. But if he if they think defensively he's premium, and I think he's certainly well above average, I'd like to know what scouts think about whether he's at the elite level if he plays full-time. Uh, but that might be the kind of guy that I might be – I don't want to spend a ton of money. I think Colby Rasmus would cost you a lot of money. I'd rather go a little lower-cost, higher defense route, or at least more defensive value, first and foremost. Okay, yeah, and I was going to I was gonna ask, Detroit finished 17th in overall defense this year, which is very middle of the pack. I mean, nothing to – Actually, much lower than that in, I think, overall, depending on how you want to look at it. Okay. If okay. You look at defensive well, runs say they're right at the bottom. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> then that's even more to the point that I was going to ask. Um, Iglesias is coming back. That's going to be big for mm-hmm. pitchers like Porcello be. and think. Do you think that is going to be enough, or like, did you just answer? You think you need well, a Cameron Maben? If you get a Cameron Maben or a, a premium defensive center fielder, and I'm not sure that those guys aren't easy to find. But again, a guy who's a real plus in center field because it's such a big center field, and Austin Jackson at his peak, took doubles and triples away all the time. There's great value in that, not just taking away singles, but good center fielders take away extra base hits. And at Comerica Park, in right center field, when you're taking away a hit, that's a triple. Uh, and that's big. And that's why I think that if you – because you've got Iglesias, assuming he's healthy, gold glove caliber, I believe strongly he'll win a gold glove at short. Kinsler, I think, will win a gold glove this year at second. Avila, assuming he's healthy, he's a plus behind the plate. No doubt about it. I don't think there's any question about that. When you call his receiving skills, calling a game, blocking balls, and throwing out base runners, he's a plus. And then you get that plus center fielder up the middle. You're quite strong. Cabrera was above average at first this year. 
Davis is fine and left, and J.D. Martinez is fine and right. They're not great, but they're fine. Um, not the great throwing arms, but again, I think if you look at again by the numbers, by what I saw this year, I would say you're fine with those two in the corner outfield. And all of a sudden, your defense, I think, looks a whole lot better. Castellanos, let's face it, he's a work in progress at third. Give him a little bit of a break. Hasn't played much there. He works his butt off. All I know is that he works hard and he's going to get better. How much better? I have no idea. But he works at it. I can tell you that. And we did see some signs this year that he can be okay at third base. He has to be quicker. And Dave Dombrowski made no bones about it. So I think overall it could be a much different picture next year. I really do. No doubt about it. And one of the the biggest differences that could be is Max Scherzer and Victor Martinez. Those are the two, I'd say, biggest names that are not currently still on this roster. What are the odds that the Tigers can somehow keep Max and then – I think that's not as likely as, as um, excuse me, um, Victor. Yeah. But what do you think about those two guys and the, and the odds that we well, see I think them? if you're trying to figure this out, and I think a great place to start is what's the commitment they have for next year. Assuming Soria, $7 million option is picked up and Alex Avila's $5.4 million option is picked up, uh, the, and, and guessing roughly $30 million for Porcello and Price in arbitration. That's a pretty decent number, I think, a pretty close number. Now you're talking 10 players are under contract for next year at $140 million. So that has to be where you start. And you have to think, okay, this year it ended at, depending on how you look at it, roughly 165 to 170 total payroll. So let's say that's the ceiling next year. I, just, I still think that's high. I can't picture it going higher. But let's say they're willing to go back to that level, which, again, I think is it's high for this market. Let's face it. So now you're talking about you've got to sign 15 players for that $30 million that you have from 140 to 170 Now, if Victor takes 16 17 of that, let's say, I think they can get that deal done. If he wants four years, that makes it a sticking point. If he wants three, I think they can get that done. Now you're up to 155 One, You have to do this calculation. Uh, yeah. And I, I think that takes Max out of the picture completely, unless you're going to trade somebody who's making big money. You're not going to trade Cabrera. You're not going to trade oh. Verlander because his value is low. And by the way, I think he'll bounce back next year. Or you're... Or you're uh, trading David Price, and you're not going to trade David Price. You just got him. So I think that the longer-term goal would be to sign David Price, but even that is going to be very pricey. Justin Verlander, my per- personal favorite Tiger from uh, over the, since 2006. Just, I think he, he just so well represents the Tigers' turnaround and his, that being his rookie season. I just, and I just like, love the way he goes about his business, even though he had – the most trying year, I would say, of his career, even off-field issues, on-field. Uh, he's, he, he was just fighting it all year. But you think you think he'll b- bounce back? Because I, I certainly hope he does. Justin? Yeah, yes. I don't think there's any question. I, I really do. I, I, the thing that you talk with him about is that, you know, he had that core surgery in January, and that prevented him from doing his off-season workouts. His off-season workouts are regimented. They're designed specifically to build that strength to get you through a long season. Not a six-month season, but really an eight-month season when you think of spring training in October. That's what he designed his body to do. He couldn't do that this year. I don't think there's any question it affected him. And when he says he thinks he can still get back to 98, 99, I'm not going to put it past him. I would say probably not, but I think we're going to see a whole lot different Justin Verlander next year. I think the legs will be underneath him. I think he'll be stronger, and I think we'll see a lot more consistency. To me, I I think you, you immediately see that guy Maybe not the Cy Young 280 ERA, but a guy who's got that 320, 330 ERA 
lower walks, higher strikeouts. Strikeouts dropped sharply this year. I think you'll just see sharpness on his pitches that it will get more swings and misses. I think it'll be a very different looking and a much better Justin Verlander. It's critical for next year. I mean, that's just based on my reading of how he felt about his inability to get ready for the season like he wanted to because of that surgery. So that's why that's what I expect next year. If it doesn't happen, that's a problem. But I really do think it will. Absolutely. And you, you saw the flashes at at the end. I mean, when it was the the big time games uh, at the end of September and the playoff game that he pitched, he's the only starting pitcher to not pick up a loss, even though he only threw five innings. Um, and I think he could have gone longer, but it was just another decision right. Osmus made to take him out in the middle of the inning, which did work out because right. Sanchez got him out. Um, but it, it's just that bulldog, um, mentality. He's just so competitive. I think, I think I agree with you. I can totally see him yeah. getting back to form. And just last thing with, uh, with the world series starting, uh, tonight. <laughs> yeah. There's been so few games. I, I thought I heard something that the combined records of the teams playing in the world series are 16 and two right, going right. in, which yeah. is. The and that's actually what I had hoped for. Once the Tigers were knocked out quickly, I just, I just wanted it to kind of get over with because because it hurts. To, <laughs> it hurts to watch. There's no denying it. But um, who's your pick? I got to go. With, it's a hard one. I, I haven't seen a team lift their game like Kansas City has in, in the postseason in a, a long, long time. I mean, playing nearly flawlessly. I know the offense isn't great, but timely home runs, timely hitting taking advantage of every 90 feet they can gain. It's phenomenal to watch. The defense is incredible. The bullpen protects any lead after the fifth inning, it seems like. And then I think San Francisco, how do you pick against Bruce Boach, who's never lost a postseason (laughs) series with these guys? And so I go back and forth all the time. I think I would pick the Royals just because it seems like they've got something – and San Francisco does too. But between these two teams that have something special going on and both have that penchant for the big hit, good bullpens, I, I love the matchup. And I hope the, I hope people love the matchup because it's two teams playing really good baseball right now and rising to the occasion when Kansas City has a bunch of guys who've never been there. And they're good for them. So my pick would be, and probably partially with my heart, would be Kansas City. But um, I hope it goes six or seven. And uh, if you made me pick, I'd pick Casey, never discounting San Francisco's special performance in the postseason the last three years. Yeah, it's unbelievable. The, the Giants are one of the only teams that could win two of four World Series, or two, two World Series in a four-year span, then get to a third oh, yeah. in a fifth year, and against a team that hasn't been there in 30 years, <laughs> and not be the overwhelming favorite. Right. I mean, the, this Giants team, there's always a chip on their shoulder. We can't even talk about they've what they do know-how. to the Tigers yeah. because it's just almost not <laughs> fair the way they've matched up the last couple of years. But there you have it. Uh, Dan believes the Royals in either six or seven. Um, Don't hold me to that, though. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll try not to. You know, I guess I'll give my own pick. I'll go with the Royals as well, just just to make uh, just for the Central Division, who yeah. hasn't hasn't got one? Was yeah. it 05 with the White Sox? Yeah, the last right. one. Tiger right. should have had a few in that meantime. <laughs> it's 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 somewhere. It's around there. Well, thank you so much for taking the time Don't to come in here. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I'm sure we've all learned a lot. Looking forward to the 2015 season. So am I. Thanks, Tony. I appreciate it. Not a problem. As always, go Tigers.